On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 253, Jose Bowen joins me to speak about spaces and places and nudges. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Jose Bowen, is no stranger to teaching in higher ed. I was looking at the episode numbers he's been on all the way back as early as episode 30, which I didn't remember to share about his book, Teaching Naked. And he joined me again on episode 136 to talk about his follow-up book that he wrote with Edward Watson about teaching naked techniques to put some of that even more into practice. And today's guest was reintroduced to me or reconnected with me through my partnership with the Association of College and University Educators, or AQ. And AQ's courses and community site feature many of the teaching and learning's top experts, faculty developers, and practitioners to showcase evidence-based teaching practices. And I've, as I've spoke about before, my partnership with them really emerged when we discovered how many of the same experts we were having conversations with, and in their case, building their course videos and such around these just amazing people. And I'm going to be linking in the show notes to some of the modules that Jose Bowen was the expert consultant on for AQ and also an article that he wrote for them called Using Feedback from Students to Improve Your Teaching. But for now, a conversation with Jose Bowen about spaces and places, and then because we can't resist also about nudges. (laughs) Here we go, a conversation with Jose. Jose, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. One of the things that I think about so often when I think about your work, Jose, is just the thought and the research that you put into what I'm calling today spaces and places. And it started really when I first became familiar with your work was your book about teaching naked and how all the thought that you've put into what we should do with this space that we call a classroom and then all the space outside of that. And I wonder if for those who are just becoming familiar with what you do, can you just give us a recap of what the message of that book was? Well, uh, well, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, just in like twenty seconds. <laughs> naked was really about thinking about all this new technology and how students have changed and how their sense of the classroom has changed. And so, I do think that there's a place for technology, but I also think that if you're going to bring students together physically, which costs a lot of money and time and effort, that you should use that space differently than you should when students are at home. So, I'm a big fan of you know, Twitter and, and texting students, hey, remember there's a problem set due tomorrow. And hey, you know, here's a little encouragement to keep reading chapter two, because, you know, students do want to know that you care when they're not in the classroom, which is most of the time. But then trying to figure out ways to make the classroom be worth the extra effort it's always going to cost um, to bring students together physically. And of course, the other thing is the students are distracted, digitally distracted. And so 
you know, what can we do in the classroom? And my, my strategy is less about, you know, don't forbid, you know, laptops or technology, but make your class so interesting and have so much face-to-face and engagement that students don't want to check Facebook. So that's, that was how I kind of started thinking about, I was really thinking about technology. And so now I'm thinking more about places because as president, I can think about, well, what are the, you know, what about classroom architecture? What about dorms? What about dining? What about other kinds of procedures? And so I've, I've the last, the next book is going to be about um, nudges and about the things that the campus can do more broadly. Yeah, this idea of nudges, I first became familiar with that. There's some experimentation that the learning management system that we use, Canvas, that they're doing around nudges. I do know that some of this topic is a bit controversial. You know, the concerns around surveillance or concerns around, you know, automating teaching. And and I, and I know that would never be what you're about at all. But I really, I used to resist nudges, at least as I understand them, because I thought, well, you know, this is something that you should be able to figure out. When I was in college, I could get the plan around, you know, and and I've completely come full circle on that, that nudges can be really helpful. They're really helpful to me in my life, even something as seemingly silly, where if I'm at work and I think, oh my gosh, I put a load of laundry in (laughs) before I left. And if I don't move that thing over when I get home, and just being able to go on my phone or my watch and say, you know, remind me when I get home to do this, that's a nudge. That's a nudge. So what what are you thinking in terms of where the controversy is? And and why is it something that you're really feeling like we could better embrace as educators? Sure. So, so the controversy comes because so, so nudges, you know, just won the, the, the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, last year. And so I'll give you one example from economics, which is retirement plans, right? So the default turns tends to matter, right? So if you're opted out of the retirement plan, most people don't have a retirement plan. But if I say the default is you're opted in, but you want to opt out, you can, you can call the HR officer, you can send us an email, and you can change your status. So, so a real nudge means you have choice, but the controversy is that it sounds a little paternalistic, right? So a society where people are, are being engineered for one decision or the other. And so the response to that, in my view, is that, look, you're engineering it anyway, right? There is no neutral. If the default is you don't have to have a retirement plan and the default is no, then fewer people will, do, will have a retirement plan. So you have a choice whether to set the thing to yes or to no. And as an institution, you should set it to the thing that you think is better um, and let people then have a choice. Another example is in choice architecture. So, you know, the jam study is my favorite, right? Because we're trying to sell more jam. And so if I have six types of jam and you have 36 types of jam, I sell 10 times as much jam because I only have six choices. So we get overloaded, we have too many choices. So I thought, well, wait a second, college, what's the first thing we do? We say, welcome to college, here are 5,000 courses, pick five. Right, that, that there's, there's, there's too many choices. So much better to say, you know, what are your interests? Do you want to be pre-med? You know, what did you do in high school? We already have information about you. Are you a morning person? Right? You know, because about, about 30% of college, 20, 20 to 30% of college students are actually morning people. But if you're not, putting you in an eight o'clock class is going to be a disaster. So I can give you a default schedule. You can then change everything. But most students take the default. So the sense is, is it paternalistic? Is it telling sense? Yeah, okay, I'm giving you a default, but I'm not forcing you to do it. I'm allowing you other kinds of things. So the question is, to me, how can we use knowledge of human behavior to help students do more of the work only they can do? 
I think another thing with nudges is that we get our timing wrong as educators. And I, I hack my way into nudging, so I don't have the big fancy you know, systems. There's one that's free that I use called Remind. And mm-hmm. Remind is a way of outside of the learning management system. And it is opt-in, although I do ask that students do it because I say, wouldn't you like to be get a text when class is canceled if I ever get sick? Yes, I would like that. <laughs> you know, they sign up. And I don't use it too often, but I ask them, oh, there was a time when I was going to be speaking at a conference. And so we had some modified class structure for that particular week. Would you like to get a remind the day before? so that you could plan out your day. And then would you like to get a reminder, maybe like an hour? Yes, yes. But I also schedule those to happen, to show up on their phones when classes don't happen at our institution. So we've got, you know, the 10 minute or the 15 minute breaks. I do not ever send a remind message when another class or event would be going on. And I think that that really helps. It's the little tiny things of having those nudges show up as close to the time when we'd want people to be thinking about them and also not disrespecting the fact that they're getting all kinds of nudges from all kinds of things that are trying to get them to pick up their phone, et cetera. Yeah. So what kind of thinking are you doing or are, are you hearing about of when the nudges happen? So you, you've hit on two really, really, really critical things that people always get nervous about. And so one is timing. You're absolutely right. That, that people want the nudge at a certain time. And so on Sunday afternoon, you want to know, hey, problem number 18 is really hard. If you get stuck there, don't stop. Go on to problem number 19. And you want that information that's on Sunday at six o'clock because that's when you're doing the homework. Or, or on Monday night before the exam, it's like, I realized that chapter two is really important and I wanted to make sure that you knew that that, right? And also, equity is an issue here too, right? You want to be fair, right? People, if, if, if students come to your office hours and say, hey, and you give them a hint and you realize, oh my God, I just told the student that they should practice chapter two, I need to tell everybody. So people want the nudges when they're doing the work, which is often on weekends or late at night. It's the night before the paper is due, um, right? One, a nudge that I like is, so hey, the paper is due Friday, it's Wednesday, you need to be finishing up your first draft so you have 24 hours before you have to edit it, right? Don't don't wait until tomorrow to start because then your, your paper will be better if you want an A, right? So that's one thing. So timing actually really is critical. But the other is you can't send too many and you have to let people opt out. So it turns out that we can really change human behavior if your phone or your wrist device tells you that you still have 100 more steps to do today or, you know, you're over your calorie count. But the question is, is, is how intrusive is it? Can I get the information when and where I want it? Do I control that? Are you going to send me 35 of these? You know, do you turn off? And so, you know, I take my cue from your phone because Apple is pretty good at this, right? They, they let you turn stuff off. You know, when I get a text message, it blinks on my phone and it does it twice, but then it goes away. Right. So it gives me not just once, but not just twice. So they figured out that, OK, I want to know, oh, there it is. I didn't respond to that. It'll still be there when I go back to my phone. So I think for most people, right, we don't we don't have, you know, the marketing department of Apple to you know, the product test, you know, how many times. But my advice for people is that tell your students what you're doing, tell them why, and then give them a chance to opt out. But I would tell them what you're going to do and why. Try a couple and say, hey, did it work? Did you like having a reminder the night before the midterm or the night before the quiz? Was that useful? Then I'll keep sending those. And, and did you like having the reminder to do the reading? And they might say, oh, no, not we didn't like that wasn't as useful. And some people might opt into, you know, again, if you really want to be sophisticated, you could do categories. 
like you do with other things on your phone, right? You, you want to get notifications about this, but not about that. So, you know, I think we're just at the beginning of this, but I think as long as people have a chance to opt out, they feel like they have some control. They understand what you're doing. But the truth is most people opt in for notifications, especially this generation. The other thing, I, I probably you wouldn't classify this as a nudge, but I, I think it's really helpful to think about how we present information in the learning management system. And one of the big things that I know is a shift for Canvas, I'm sorry to keep using them as an example, but I get to go to their conference for the last three years now, and I learn so much every time. But they showed video and had done a whole bunch of research around how students use their app on the phone or or how they inter- engage with what we've set up in there. And I used to totally think of it as this is my class. And so come into my class and you'll see the weeks all laid out. I've got pretty graphics there for you. <laughs> I'd get so frustrated. What? Like, what do you mean what's due week three? Just go into week three. And I really thought of it in a very self-centered way as far as using it the way I use it. Because I'm you know, that's my class, right? It, it, it really, I laugh at myself now, but I think it's helpful for me to admit my failure now publicly so other people can learn from this. Students don't look at the learning management system that way. They look at the calendar, if, the, if that's a feature in your LMS, or in the case of Canvas, there's a nice to-do list that's showing up there on their home screen when they first log in. So if I can break any major assignment down into the little parts and pieces, I wish they'd spread it out a little bit more, even if it's not something that I grade. But I consider that a nudge once you're in, you know, once you've opened up that app. That's a the, great one. The Actually, things yeah, are going to yeah. like call your attention to what is there for you to help your learning. Well, and it turns out, right, we, you know, we've, we've talked for decades about breaking up larger assignments into smaller pieces, right? You know, the, the term paper, you know, don't wait until the last week, you know, and so we've had to do nudges like turn in your bibliography in week three, turn in your outline in week four, those sorts of things. But, but you've, you've identified, right, your learning management system is, is all about nudges, And so breaking up the project into what you should do, you should be working on this, you should be working on that. It's not gonna work for 100% of students, but it doesn't have to. Because the students it's most likely to help are your first generation students, your students who don't have the other person to tell them, hey, you know, that term paper is going to creep up on you. I had this experience when I was in college, your parent, et cetera. So it's like, no. So, so letting them know that this is where you should be in week two and week three and week four. So breaking up things into to-do lists, even if they're not, a, you know, they're not really due, is a great nudge. And you might as well do it because, any, again, students can ignore it. Mm-hmm. But you're telling them, where should I be? And not everybody knows, where should I be in the process? Again, this idea that you need to finish a paper a day or two in advance so that you can have a fresh set of eyes to edit it the next day. Every academic knows this is common sense, and most students don't know that. And so not only do they not know it, but they, they've never been nudged to do it. And so now, the, 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 whether it's so, again, and your LMS is pretty nudge neutral in terms of it's not invasive, right? You have to open up the app. So, but just thinking about your to-do list, my other favorite nudge, frankly, is when the assignments are due, right? You know, we haven't talked about my favorite topic of sleep yet, but, um, right, we, we want, students need more sleep. Yes. And so one of the nudges is to not make your assignments due at midnight, because that's the default in a lot of, you know, the learning management systems is, you know, midnight. And so uh, making them due at nine, 
or eight or five or, or something else and be consistent. So it's always the same. So, you know, ultimately everybody has the same amount of time. But if you leave it to midnight, you're allowing students that extra space to do it. And you can, you can always make an exception. You can always, you know, you're going to have working parents. You've got various sorts of things. But again, getting people into the habit of not, you know, encouraging them to stay up to midnight. So that's a nudge that also works. It's something that every faculty member can do. Yeah, I do. I do not do the eleven fifty nine. I change it every single time, and nine is as late as I'll typically go, unless there are multiple things due on a night, and I know I've conditioned them that oh boy, <laughs> every day this week there's a little something due. So if it's a little bit more than my typical week's work, then I might go as late as ten. But that's I, I do not set any due date times any later. Also, that. one thing you could also do with 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 again with all these of these learning systems is have the draft due, you know, the day before. Yep. You don't have to look at it, but you have, but students have, and you can even say it has to be a certain word count and you can automate all that. So you don't, so you get an extra, you know, and then you say, okay, the draft is due and now you have a, t a chance to edit. Because as we all know, one of the problems is that students, they think the all nighter or the, you know, the last minute, you know, and so getting students to schedule things and to space it out, and again, we can take this clue from the nutritionists and the exercise people and all of the Fitbits and all of that sort of stuff, because it is about the regularity. So that, you know, the calorie counter that I, I use, lose it. If I don't do it on the same day, then it's like, eh, no, you didn't do it, right? You have to. So it, it forces me to say, oh, I haven't put in my food for the day. And I do it as I go along. And that, of course, is better because I want to know before I have dinner how many calories I had at lunch. So it's, you know, it's, it's just set up by default to nudge me into doing what will be better for me. I know you have had some tremendous changes on your campus and I do want to just spend a few minutes so we can all drool vicariously and try to, try to just love the imagination and the student centeredness that you used for this. And then after that, just for those of us that don't have the kind of budget that you might've had for these projects, I know we're going to talk a little bit, some practical ways we could just take control of the things that are right around us. So, but let's start with big stuff. What's, what's been going on on your campus and some of the tremendous changes that have happened there? Sure. So, I mean, the good news is it, you know, it mostly doesn't cost more money. It's about design, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's like the ATM machine, right? Somebody figured out that if the buttons were bigger, people would make fewer mistakes. And it doesn't cost any more money to have ATM machines with bigger buttons. It's just a design issue. You've got to think about, well, what are we trying to accomplish? What is, what's the goal? So on our campus, we've, you know, kind of had an all out effort to think about student engagement and student success. So from the curriculum, right, we, we, we looked at our curriculum and we decided to focus more on process than content, partly because, I mean, we still have content, obviously. But, you know, in a liberal arts campus, I don't care what your major is. I don't want to say, well, you should have this major or that major. And students worry about having the right major. So instead of having all the distribution requirements, we created a system where students take courses in complex problem explorations, where there's more group work. Because the top three things that employers want are complex problem solving in groups with people who are not like you. So I can say to parents, this is jobs, 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 but it's still the liberal arts. So those, those complex problems might be, you know, immigration, disease, water, food. Students pick the topic. We don't, we don't mandate the topic. We focus more on the process. So there's clearly content, but we, did, we do have a new curriculum that was a pretty massive undertaking. But we've also looked at, you know, the, the, the spaces and places on our campus where students interact. One of the issues today is that this is the first generation of students to arrive on a college campus with all of their high school friends with them, right, on their phone. 
The first thing they do is they take a picture of their room, they post it to Instagram and their high school friends comment on it. So they're, they're still tethered to high school in a way that we weren't. That's in, true in the dining hall, it's true in dorms. So we built nudge dorms, which means the rooms are smaller, they're doubles. And we put bigger lounges, lounges on every floor. The staircases are on either side of the lounge. So you have to walk through all four lounges to get to the fourth floor. The Wi-Fi speeds are faster in the lounges than in your dorm room, so there's reason to get out. There are quiet rooms at the end of the hall, also with fast Wi-Fi. Uh, and then there are social rooms in the middle, the lounges, kitchens, every place. The laundry room is a beautiful thing you can see and talk to people. So it's all about getting students out of their room. In the dining hall, we wanted the same, right? Students wanted to take food in a plastic. They wanted to take all the food to go, uh, to go back to their room, and they could sit on Facebook and eat and you know talk to their talk to their high school friends. So what we did was we redesigned the dining hall. We made the food a little more interactive, made the Wi-Fi speed faster. We put all of the good food together in the non-takeout area so that if students want stir fry made fresh, they can get that, but they can't take it back to their dorm room. So I know it's working because A, we're serving 50% more meals and B, students are protesting. Oh, and C, the pizza <laughs> delivery guy is really mad, um, mm. right? Because students were ordering. So now there's more reason to go to the dining hall and, and use the fast Wi-Fi and eat the food. So um, so those are all ways to get students to do more kinds of interaction, thinking about place. You know, we're thinking about library hours. We're thinking about where do students congregate, you know, hallway space. Again, none of these things cost a lot of money. In fact, reducing your library hours will save you money. But, you know, we know all-nighters are not good for you. Why should the library be open all night? You know, we know that students, you know, work better. Some students want to be quiet. Students work at different times of the day. So we've done a lot of work on the class schedule. We have fewer, almost no 8 o'clock classes now. We have more 7 p.m. classes where adolescents tend to be time-shifted and tend to do better there. That was certainly an effort that faculty don't like as much as students because, right, I mean, some people do. And registration, as I mentioned, giving students a default schedule. Uh, and then letting them change rather than saying, here's a blank slate. We're adding professional advisors whose part of their job is to focus more on the non-academic, you know, because faculty always want to focus on, well, how are your classes going? And really, well, how is your roommate? Is your roommate keeping you up at night? Because if your roommate is keeping you up or, or you're a morning person, your roommate's a night person, or, or, you know, they always have the boyfriend or girlfriend over and you can't, you know, whatever, that's really going to affect your ability to do well in, in your classes. Um, where do you study? How do you study? Do you study alone? Um, are you keeping to a schedule? Do you have a job? Do you have three jobs? When is your job, right? Do you have time between classes to think? So the self-awareness of students is really critical for their success, but also because ultimately what we're trying to do is create self-regulated learners. You know, our real job is to make ourselves obsolete so that students don't need us forever and they can actually manage their own learning. And so if we're not talking about the metacognition and the, the pieces of how do you manage three assignments or four assignments at once plus your job, and faculty don't feel trained to do, I don't feel trained to do that. You know, I'm not a psychologist, but students need to have those kinds of discussions about, you know, how are you managing the stress from your job and do you miss your dog? And, and you know, that, so we're, we're adding that, that set of, you know, how do we, where do we have those conversations with students? Because they're really, really important. Some of the reading that I've been doing and also people I've had on the show have even made me aware of just 
students come into class hungry, and there can be a lot of reasons why students might come to class hungry, and that doesn't matter. And the thing I'm about to share is maybe not practical for a lot of people, but one of the things I just experimented with this semester is a couple of times I just brought snack stuff like hummus and carrots and some pita chips. And then yesterday was kind of a big celebration in my class. So I picked up some chicken at a place that they, a lot of the students like and some fries. And I actually, <laughs> speaking of nudges, and ended up, I'm sitting in the parking lot like, oh, wow, I didn't know. I thought this was just going to be a drive through thing. But apparently it takes longer when you they need to make that many of the chicken things. So I'm sitting in the parking lot and I send them a message. And I got I heard back instantly from a young man, Oh, thank you so much. I'm starving. And by the way, my class was from 2.30 to 5.30. So it's not like I would expect most of them. But if you missed lunch, I mean, that's all you can think about. And I don't think that this young man is probably at a need financially. But it just I just like to think sometimes about the things that might hold our students back from learning. And we do know there's a lot of financial pressure on today's students, but also just something as simple as hungry. And can we do something as simple as bringing a $3 bag of some popcorn or I mean, just, just something? And even just the thought of it to me matters too. That was just one small way I could show them that I care. I didn't do it a lot this semester. I probably did it three times in 15 weeks. But I think those students, if you ask them, I think they would think that I care about them. And part of that was just a small well, gesture. Well, and we know that the research is clear. Students learn more when they when they think that you care about them. And yeah. so when you do care about them, it matters even more. And so I think they learn more. They want it. They don't want to disappoint you. They want to you know do good things for you. But but you're absolutely right. It's very hard to learn if you need to go to the dentist and your teeth hurt or you're hungry or you're mm-hmm. sleepy. So we have a sweet campaign on our campus, which is, stands for sleep, water, exercise, eating, and time. Um, it's something that, that Eddie and I talked about in the in the Teaching Naked Techniques book. Um, and there's a lot of sweet in, in, the, in the new book because, right, sleep is not something that, you know, individual faculty can do as much about, you know, dimming the lights and that kind of thing. But water does matter, right? So for, if you have an early morning class, you know, and your students are all taking their coffee, right? Coffee is a diuretic. It dehydrates you. So anybody who's ever passed out, as I did over the weekend, so, right, if, if you, you know, if you're dehydrated and you're exercising, right, and you do something and you, you know, that, but you know, your body clearly responds to not enough water in the morning. I had coffee before playing tennis. I was going to say, is this involved with tennis somehow? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I was, I was like playing tennis oh, early no. in the morning and I, you know, I took my water with me, but I had coffee because I wanted it. So, right. And the doctor's like, no, you're an idiot. That's why, you know, but if it works for your muscles, it works for your brain, right? Your, your brain needs water to be able to make neural connections. So you learn better um, if you have water in the morning first, and then you can have a little coffee. Um, we're not sure coffee helps. There's a whole debate about this, but, but we know that water helps. Sleep and water are really good for learning. So um, there are a couple of interesting studies about having water for students in your class. You know, and again, just, you know, put some, some, some cups in a jug of water if you don't want to use the water bottles. But again, it shows that you care. It also helps them. And you're totally right about student hunger. Students are sometimes hungry because they can't afford it, but they're also hungry because they forget to eat or they, they were too busy. They had a 12 o'clock class and they didn't want to walk down the campus or whatever. So on our campus, we did change the meal plans. So we went from the, you know, you get 100 or 150 or 200 meals a semester to 19 meals a week and it resets on Sunday. So clearly the students who were, who were poor benefit because you know, they just weren't, and, and, and it's a mandatory first year plan. But, but even students who had the money 
were hoarding meals. <laughs> you know, they thought, oh, I'll, you know, I'll have these, then I'll have a big party at the end of the semester. And so we took away a choice. So that wasn't really a nudge because we just took it away. But we did think about how do we structure meal plans so you're more likely to have three meals a day. And that also does seem to be contributing to the food insecurity on our campus. That more of our, our you know, we've, we've essentially eliminated that problem by changing the structure of the meal plan. And I don't, you know, again, faculty can't, can't do all those things, but it is the case that thinking about the context of your students and their lives in your classroom makes a big difference. Before we go to the recommendation segment, I'd love a couple comments from you then about things we could control about spaces and places as professors and specifically probably in the classroom. Sure. So I mentioned time. So when your assignments are due is a, is a giant nudge. So in the classroom, you know, the most important thing is how you set up the furniture. The newer classrooms today have more space. They have walls that you can write on. Um, and so if you have one of those rooms and it makes you nervous, try it anyway. Try a room without a podium. It turns out that for most of us, you have plenty of authority. Students assume that you're smart and you have degrees and all of that. So you don't need to reassert that. You need to show that you care and that you really want them to learn. So setting up the class in a circle, sitting down. I had a minute with a group of students yesterday, and just my, the fact that I sat down rather than stayed standing up, they comment on it. say, wow, that you sat down with us really mattered. It's like, really? You know, the fact that I was seated? <laughs> so, you know, taking a place in the circle. So, so, you know, taking students outside when it's nice. And yeah, you're right, there are going to be more distractions, but they're different distractions. And especially if you have you no know, Wi-Fi on the lawns or something, or the cell service isn't as good, you know, you'll change the conditions. But we know that students are digitally distracted all the time. This is not a classroom problem. You can't have policies for the, you know, the five hours a week that you see them and expect you know, the rest of their lives, they've, they've got their phones, they've got other kinds of things. So recognizing the way that you set up, right? And if you're set up in a way that people can look at each other, um, they're less likely to be on their phones. If you have students who want to take notes on their laptops or who have you know, learning issues that they need you know, or, or, or disability issues or whatever, put the people with laptops together. Because the worst place to be in a classroom is near a laptop when you're not on a laptop because it's distracting because you don't have any control. So, you know, people with laptops sit over on the left. People who don't want to use laptops sit over on the right. I also think you should you should not just say, you know, I forbid cell phones in my classroom. I think it's very easy to say, please close your laptop. I need you to really focus on each other for the next 10 minutes and make sure that they're then doing something where they have to focus on each other and they will naturally put their phones away because they don't want to be rude. It also turns out that if you're doing things in twos, sometimes threes, but if you're doing things in twos, people know it's rude to use a phone when you're talking to another person face to face. If you're in groups of four, people will be on one person, right? Because there's actually a rule that sociologists have noticed that, that, that millennials and Gen Z, if they're at a restaurant and there are three people or four people, and three of them are talking, the fourth person feels okay to get on the phone. So those are, you know, sort of subtle things that people can do. But I do think everybody in elementary school knows that if you paint the classroom bright colors and you put up some posters, right, turns out students actually do learn more, they pay attention more. So what are the things you can do in your classroom to make your classroom feel like a more secure, encouraging place? I've written a post, which I'll link to about teaching with stickies, but I've never had anybody on their phone when they're asked to 
pair up with somebody, identify some things, stickies, and then go post them around the room. I've never seen phones out and also fascinated by sorting exercises. So whether it's sorting things categorically or top to bottom, I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can do this, but never see the phones come out with that. And I was mentioning this special class that I had yesterday that was kind of a celebration for us of the semester and they had made board games. And so the groups, actually, they didn't all make board games. One group did a Jeopardy game, but no one was on their cell phones. And then the other two had created their own board games. No cell phones out. And I mean, actually, you know, once or twice, there was something, I could see something happening, and it was for about 15 seconds, and the phone went away. It's pretty nice. And, and you know, this is not... Up and moving. Yeah. And you're right. If you have walls you can write on, that's great. But if you don't, stickies work really, really well. I'm also a big fan of, if you have PowerPoint in the classroom, and if you're not a big fan, of putting the learning outcome on the slide. Put a colorful slide up that has less, six or fewer words that says, what are we doing and why? Because then if I get distracted, like I took out my phone, I know, what are we doing and why? Oh, we're trying to, you know, what is the thing that we're trying to do? And that 15 minutes, it changes. But some visual reminder of what we're trying to do, what is, and not just, oh, we're, we're doing a sticky game, but we're trying to help each other put things into categories because it was, you know, some kind of explanation of what we're trying to do that helps students too, because they get distracted and they forget what, and you get distracted. So it helps me. This is the point in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I want to start by encouraging people to watch a video of Bobby McFerrin teaching the pentatonic scale. And since I happen to have a music professional, <laughs> I think you can probably attest, as Bobby has shared, that the pentatonic scale is one of the hardest things to teach in music. But boy, he makes it look easy. And I'm actually going to play just a tiny bit of it. And I'm going to describe what's happening. So he's at a conference and he's on a panel. It's the World Science Festival, and I'll tell you what's happening, but you'll hear a little, a little bit from him. So he's inviting the audience with his hands, and he's jumping up and down, <laughs> and he's getting them all to sing with him. And now he's stepped over to the side. Again, inviting them to sing, singing along with them. So the last thing that just happened would probably fall into the category of prediction. We know how powerful prediction can be in teaching and in learning. So he jumps, he's jumping to the side, bum, 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 bum. And that last one, he hasn't taught that yet, but he jumps off to the side and you know where he's going. You don't have to be a musician. It's just kind of a visual thing. And in his case, since he's jumping up and down and inviting them, it's kind of a kinesthetic thing as well. So I, I'm going to invite you to watch this three-minute video and write down some reflections on what you can take away from Bobby, because I guarantee you, no matter your discipline, there's a lot we can can take away from that. And this also gets me to thinking about improvisation, because of course, Bobby McFerrin is a famous jazz musician, and there's a lot of improvisation there. And recently, I was trying to explain to my children why these swing dancing videos I was watching on YouTube the other day were so impressive. Because most of the time, if you watch a dance competition, that dance has been choreographed in advance. And, you know, that is impressive in its own right. But as somebody who did swing dancing in my 20s, I know how spectacularly impressive it is when these dancers get together. And they don't, they haven't, maybe they've danced together, but they certainly, this is not a choreographed dance. Maybe they've heard the song before, maybe they haven't. And so I have a couple of videos in the show notes I'd love to watch, have you go and watch. As you watch them, 
These dancers, in this case, the man is performing the lead and the woman is follow, as is often traditional in some forms of dance. And it's just fascinating as someone who did this, you have to be so aware and watching the eyes and every little cue that you're getting. And if you know the song, then you kind of know there's a break coming, but maybe you don't know the song, but you can feel those breaks coming and just be anticipating them. And as you watch those videos, if you're so inclined, just be thinking about our own teaching because it reminds me of we have a beat going. There's, you know, if this particular music, a lot of swing is an eight count. And so you've got that beat. You kind of know I've planned out this class. I, I know where we're headed because I've done this before a little bit, but it's this constant back and forth that is so beautiful to be a part of. And I just, it was just a fun thing, but I don't think my kids really were ready for a lecture on uh, eight counts and <laughs> why this is impressive and what improvisation is. But you know, they had fun watching the videos. They did want to watch more the next night. So that's my recommendations. And Jose, I know you've actually worked with Bobby, so may have a few things to say about this and then may have some recommendations of your own. Yeah. So Bobby's a fantastic teacher and, and that's a great clip, partly because he does naturally all the things that you should do as a great teacher. The first is he breaks it down, right? And, and as, as teachers, we often think, you know, well, I have to make this distinction up at this level. We forget that this is hard for them. They're new to this. And so where is the entry point? What is the thing they really need to start with? And so he doesn't start with five notes in the pentatonic scale. He doesn't mm -hmm. sing the scale. He starts with one note. He gets people to do one note. And he does. So, so first is he breaks it down into an element that everybody can have success with. Right. Everybody can figure it. Okay. One note, one note, one note, one note. Got it. And then he turns it into something fun. So the second thing is engagement, right? That engagement happens before learning that if you want to people to improvise, whether it's swing dancing or whatever, you have to be focused, right? You have to totally be focused and you have to understand what the system is. You have to have some sense of what the options are and have had some experience. So Bobby generates both of those things, right? So he says, okay, there's one note, one note, and then he starts jumping around. And so you're focused, you're, you're engaging with him, he's having fun. Then he picks a second note and he picks the two notes. And he spends a lot of time going back and forth between the two notes and he adds the element of the visual, visual. So you've got this whole thing. So you're engaged, you're focused, you're following. And then he jumps over and people, you know, sing the third note. But that only works because A, everybody's engaged, everybody's involved, and he started at the most basic level. And we don't always start start there. We're always afraid we won't cover the material if we don't get to someplace. And so you have to start with something really basic. Again, I think of it, I call this the entry point. You know, where where can you get people to relax, to engage, and to just do the thing that you want them to do? And he's really good at that. But it means that they'll go with you then at, at a certain point. If you start at a place where they're with you, then when you get to the hard part, the third note, they're with you. And even if you get it wrong, you'll try it again because you had fun and you can laugh and you're, you're engaged. And so I, that's a great model of both that idea that you have to get people engaged and that you have to break it down into enough small steps. So for me, the, right, teaching is about design. It's about understanding what are the steps and how can I design better problem sets than you can or other kinds of things it's not just about content. If we only focus on content, then our unique value as a teacher at a unique institution gets lost. So that's a great clip. That's a great recommendation. I'm also, I lo I'm loving Sarah Kavanaugh's book on emotion and learning mm. because I think it's, again, it's got lots of practical stuff, but it also just reminds us that your emotions are really a key part of everything about the process. In fact, you know, that's probably why we have emotions, right? Is to help us learn and to focus on what to learn and so if emotions are guiding your brain in terms of what it should be doing, you know, you ignore them at your peril. 
It has been so wonderful to reconnect. And I have this feeling already that when this book comes out, we get to reconnect again. You're coming back. Yes. Look at this. I'd love to have you back. And it's such an honor to have these one-on-one conversations that, you know, just get shared with a few thousand people. So it's really great. That's, that's, that's a big number. Again, congratulations to you on really a significant accomplishment and a project that you're making a real difference in American higher ed teaching. And there, you know, millions and millions of students should be grateful to you for their, their improvement of their education. So thank you. Well, it's only because of people like you saying yes, that it was ever possible. So you're, you're definitely a part of this. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot. Thanks once again to Jose Bowen for being on today's podcast. It was great to hear your stories and catch up on some of the big and seemingly small things that you're doing at your institution to serve your students well. Thanks to all of you for listening. If it's been a while that you've been listening to the show and you're taking some things away, I'd love to have you share that with colleagues or maybe on social media. You can connect with me on Twitter at B-O-N-N-I. There's no E on the end of this particular Bonnie's name. And followed by the number 208, Bonnie 208. And I'm also on Instagram at that same. You could see adorable pictures of the kids or it's mostly personal stuff, but would love to have you if you want to be brightened, have your day brightened by cute kids and occasionally cute me. So I was holding an emoji card trying to imitate it recently. That's a fun, fun thing to see. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.